Yes, I am Reed Metcalf. I am the newest of the associate pastors here at Living Spring. And um, it's my first time getting to preach here. So John was intentionally out of town because he knew it would be bad. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, So my day job, um, I don't get paid by the church. Um, My day job is that I am a professor of New Testament and I teach at both the graduate level and the undergraduate level. So college students and then people who are preparing for ministry at seminary. And just the nature of being a teacher of the Bible in an academic setting means that my preaching style is a little bit different than John's. And I just want to prep you guys so that you're not like, what is this guy doing? Um, John is an excellent preacher, by the way. Um, But again, I just do things a little bit differently. So John does a really great job of breaking stuff down into manageable chunks, right? And then relating it to real life examples, something that you might be experiencing. So if you remember when we did the um, uh, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table sermon series, John was able to relate Romans 8.6, which is the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. He was able to relate that to eating too many chips, and too much chips and salsa at a restaurant. Like, that's a talent. That's really good. Um, He's great at this sort of stuff. I am not. By the way, he paid me to say that. Um, (laughs) But John is also really good. He is excellent at making connections between different verses of the Bible or different books of the Bible without ever taking anything completely out of context. So we saw in his uh, sermon series on Nehemiah, he was able to relate parts of or uh, not Nehemiah, on Gideon, parts of the story of Gideon to um, uh, part of the book of Hebrews, right? He did an excellent job with that. My own style of preaching is heavily, heavily informed by being a teacher of the New Testament. And with that comes a deep conviction that every single book of the Bible is an inspired word of God and has something for us on its own terms. Now, I'm not saying that John doesn't believe this, but what I really want to focus on is hearing each voice that's in the Bible without making them all sound the same. So that means that when I'm talking about the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to stay in Mark, and I'm not going to give you guys examples from Luke, right? When I'm teaching from Paul, I'm not going to jump to 1 Peter, Or that when I'm teaching from Peter, I'm not going to jump to Paul. Because each author had a specific point to get across, and they were talking to a specific situation, and that meant that they had specific details about God and God's work in this world that they needed to get to us, right? And when we're going along the path, and we hit something in, say, let's choose Obadiah. You might not even know that Obadiah is a book in the Bible, but it is. But if we hit something really difficult to understand in Obadiah, and instead of really sitting and wrestling with Obadiah, and we jump to a part of the Bible that we know really well, like let's say the book of Romans, we actually end up, I think, short-circuiting what God wants to tell us 
in the book of Obadiah. Now, I want to linger in those details. I want to stay in the tension. So, we are going to stay in one book at a time. Um, We are going to stick today with the gospel of Luke. Um, And this is so that we can just linger in those details longer. Get more out of the book. And one way that I want you guys to see this is not that, oh, well, he's a teacher and he gets it right. Well, you can get it right too, right? I'm, I'm not the end-all, be-all on understanding how the Bible works. Um, consider me more like a park ranger, right? You can go out and you can hike the trail on your own. And you can go out and you can enjoy the trail on your own. And you're going to see wonderful things and you're going to learn new stuff and you're going to feel refreshed. But when you take me along, I might stop and say, did you see this rock that you walked right past and didn't notice? There's something special about it, and this is what it is. We have markings here of a glacier moving through here, and it changes how you see how you're on the trail. You can still get it on your own, right? You can still go out and enjoy the beauty of nature on your own, but you learn more when the park ranger goes along and just is able to notice things because they've been trained to notice things. All right? So all that to say, you guys don't really need me, but hopefully you'll learn a little bit of something today, right? You guys can read the Bible on your own. But today, we are going to stick with Luke. The only time we're going to jump out of Luke is when Luke directly quotes somebody else, right? So if he quotes an Old Testament book, we'll jump there. But otherwise, we're going to stay put in one book. Now again, this isn't worse or better than how John preaches. It's just different. I mean, it is better, but um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love you, John. Um, So today we're going to spend time with a guy named Zacchaeus, which a lot of you are probably going to say, well, I know that story really well. For those of us who grew up in the church, a lot of us grew up hearing this story in Sunday school from a very, very early age. And some of you probably even have in your head some Sunday school songs about Zacchaeus, right? You still know these, wee little man was he, right? But I'm thinking that if we can spend more time in Luke, and we can look a little bit more at Luke's entire context, right, that we can understand this story in a new light. So the story of Zacchaeus actually only shows up in the Gospel of Luke. You guys might know that the Gospels share a lot of different stories. This is a story that only happens in Luke's Gospel. Now, Luke's story doesn't start where Zacchaeus' story starts, right? We don't meet Zacchaeus until Luke chapter 19. So to really get a good grasp of what's happening in this story, it's a good idea for us to start at the beginning of Luke. We got 19 chapters and about three hours of uh, Luke to get through today. I'm kidding. Um, But we are going to go back to the beginning of Luke and just sort of set the scene for what's going to happen when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the man who climbs the sycamore tree, right? So, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we meet a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is no relation to Zacchaeus. Zechariah is an old, poor priest. He's a member of the priesthood, and the way that the priesthood worked in the time of Jesus 
is that you had a bunch of people who were born into this class, that you were born into a tribe of priests. And the temple, which was the political, it was the religious, it was the social center of the Jewish world. Imagine it like the Super Bowl and Washington, D.C., and, um, oh gosh, what would another example be? All of these things rolled up into one. It's where all the stuff happens, right? Um, and because it was such a huge, big part of the Jewish world, they needed lots of staff to run it. So Zeke- or Zechariah is just one of many priests, and he is on duty for a week every year, and it so happens that while he's on duty, he gets picked to go into the middle of the temple. Not many people get picked to do this. Zechariah is old, and he has no children. In this day and age, having no children, not a good thing. A lot of people look at this and they say, that's God's judgment on you, that you don't have children. But it also tells us that Zechariah was righteous before the Lord. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, when you meet an old person who's righteous, who has no kids, what's going to happen? They're going to have a kid, right? And while Zechariah is in the temple, the angel Gabriel shows up and announces to him, your wife Elizabeth, who is also old, by the way, it says they're getting on in years. That's a polite way of saying it. Um, Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear to you a son named John. And Gabriel goes on and tells them, John is going to do great stuff. And in what he says, Gabriel says this about John. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. That's what happens with Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't believe. He goes mute for a little bit. You probably know this story. Then our next scene is that Gabriel shows up later to Mary, a virgin who's not yet married to a man named Joseph. And Gabriel gives her a similar announcement. He says, you are going to become pregnant with God's child. And he says, Gabriel tells Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, why do I take us all the way back here to talk about Zacchaeus? Because what I want us to see is that Luke's gospel starts, and it just sort of hits you over the head like a hammer with the fact that God is, at the outset, working to bring his people back to him. It's not just any God. It's the God of Israel, right? It's the God of Jacob. It's the God of David. It's the God of Abraham. And it says, I'm working to bring Israel back to me. Now, what does that mean? Well, Israel, after King David, had really lost their way. They got really corrupt. And they never quite made their way back to God. So that's the start of Luke's gospel. But there's more to it than that. We get to see Mary and Zechariah react to this message about what God is going to do through them and their children. So, Mary, at one point, is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
when someone gets filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a good sign that they're telling the truth, right? Holy Spirit doesn't tell lies. Holy, Holy Spirit is all about truth. Mary gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and she says this in Luke 1, 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise that he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, one thing that I want to point out is what Mary is talking about here. The people who are low, the people who are poor, the people who are hungry, good things are coming their way because of God. And for those who are powerful and are rich and are well-off, things don't look good with what God is doing, right? Zechariah says something similar. When his son John is born, his mouth is open, he's able to speak, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. Thus he's shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our ancestor Abraham. He goes on and talks about, again, the rescue from enemies and the ability to live righteously. In both of these stories, we see the major themes develop that are going to characterize Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. And it's this, that God is at work to bring his people back to him, which is what he promised to Abraham and David. And that also God is on the side of people who are lowly, downtrodden, the poor, but God is going to tear down the rich, the powerful, the proud, right? This is the part of Jesus that, uh, and the Gospels that a lot of people kind of like to skip over. They're like, oh, Jesus is just so nice. And it's like, well, mm, there's also some harsher words that bite a little bit, right? That God is bringing up those who are low, but he's also bringing down those who are high. For those of you who think, oh, well, that's just Mary and Zechariah, and they kind of disappear from the story, you're right. They don't show up again very much in the Gospel of Luke. But look at what Jesus himself says in Luke 4. This is the only sermon of Jesus in a synagogue that we get to see in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's happening here is that Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah. 
And in Isaiah, what's happening is that God is promising that he's going to save his people. He's going to restore his people. And this is how he's going to do it, right? He's going to send a spirit-anointed person to do these things. Good news to poor, release to captive, sight to blind, let the oppressed go free. Again, the picture that we're getting of Jesus and what Jesus is about is that he's showing up to care for those who are barely just scraping by, right? He's taking care of those who don't have power or voice in his society, who live on the outskirts that aren't in the community, who don't go to dinner parties, who aren't the right people, who don't dress the right way, right? And this image of Jesus continues through the Gospel of Luke. He hangs out with poor fishermen who are not exactly the kind of people that you think, oh, wow, what a great job. He seeks out prostitutes. He touches lepers to cleanse them. He sets people free from demons and sicknesses. And he brings people back into the community who've been outside of the community for one reason or another. Those people who are stuck on the outside looking in, Jesus says, come inside. Now, of course, this scandalizes a lot of people that Jesus hangs out with, right? Jesus spends a ton of time hanging out with just ordinary common folk who are just going about their daily life. Tons of crowds of people follow him everywhere. Just ordinary folks. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke also spends tons of time with the Pharisees. Like, he's at Pharisee dinner parties on the regular in the Gospel of Luke, having discussions with them, right? And at certain points, we see these people, both the Pharisees and the ordinary crowds, say, why is he hanging out with those people, right? And we see this in Luke 15. This is a part where tax collectors and sinners are coming to see Jesus, and the Pharisees grumble about it. They're like, those people? Really? And Jesus responds to them with three parables. And these are parables you probably know. There's the lost sheep. Which one of you who has 100 sheep and one runs away would not leave the 99 to go find the one that was lost? And then when you, when you find them, you put them on your shoulders, you come back and you say, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. And then he tells the parable of the lost coin. A woman loses one of her ten coins. She sweeps the house, opens all the windows until she finds the coin. And Jesus says, in the same way, when just one sinner repents, there's great rejoicing in heaven. And then he tells the parable that even people who have never set foot in a church know, which is the parable of the prodigal son, where a man has two sons, and both of them become lost at one point. And the father doesn't stop until both sons are welcomed back into the household. There's the son who runs away carousing, and there's the son who doesn't want to welcome the other one back, right? Both sons are lost. Both sons get welcomed back. Now, what the point of all of this is, is that it shows that God and Jesus are in the business of finding lost things. For whatever reason they're lost, that's what they do, all right? 
This is the context for Zacchaeus' story. God is bringing people back to himself. Everyone who's a part of Israel. Jesus is going out to find everyone. Every single sheep. And Jesus is doing this by especially ministering to the poor, the sick, and those who in their society have no power or social standing. Now, we finally get to Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is a person that we only meet here, these 10 verses of Luke. At this point in the story, Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the final time. Not everyone who's following Jesus gets that this is the final time. But those of us who are familiar with Jesus' story know what's going to happen. But as people are following him, huge crowds are following all the way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And they're expecting him, when they get to Jerusalem, they expect him to become king. And this is an exciting time for them. Because they know his teachings, they know he's talking about the kingdom of God, and about raising up the lowly and bringing down the the mighty, right? So they're expecting, oh man, this guy's going to become king, and he's going to get rid of the corrupt leadership in the temple. He's going to get rid of the Romans who are oppressing us, and life is finally going to be good again, right? I'm not going to have to worry about whether or not I've got enough money to make it to next season, right? I'm not going to have to worry about the landlord taking my farm from me. They're excited. And as he comes into Jericho, here we meet Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho, he being Jesus, and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. Now let's talk about what we know about Zacchaeus here. It says, chief tax collector and rich. Now, a tax collector in Rome was actually what we would call today a toll collector. He's like a customs guy. He doesn't collect income tax from you. Instead, as you move from town to town or from your field into town to sell your goods, he has the authority from Rome to collect part of your goods on behalf of Rome. It's a toll. He also is not paid by Rome. He's authorized by Rome, but he's not paid, which means any of his own money he needs to earn by taking a little bit from him, for himself from your goods, right? Now, of course, because of the way that this is set up, toll collectors had a really bad reputation, right? They were local people. It would have been someone from this group, right, who was picked by the Romans to do Rome's work, and then they said, I can't pay for myself unless I take a little bit from you. And some toll collectors indeed took way more than they should have. And so there's this reputation that they're corrupt, right? And this is one of those stereotypes that has some foundation in truth. Um, Now, Zacchaeus is called a chief tax collector. 
he's the only person in written history who we have called a chief tax collector. So we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe he was the best at his job. Maybe he had people who worked for him. We don't know. But the word for chief is the same word that's used elsewhere in Luke and in Greek literature for ruler. He's in charge of stuff. And what do we know about rulers in the gospel of Luke? It's bad news for them, right? God is coming to bring down the mighty from their thrones. And here is a guy who's in charge of stuff, a guy who's on his throne. We're also told that he's rich. What else does the gospel of Luke lead us to expect about someone who's rich? That it's not going to go well for them, right? Jesus is there to give those who are hungry good things to eat and then send the rich away empty. And we actually had a rich ruler come just a couple of chapters before and say, Jesus, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, sell everything and give it to the poor. And the guy walks away sad because that's not good news to him, right? And so now we see a guy who's a ruler, who works for Rome, and is rich. Things aren't going to go well for this guy. But he wants to see Jesus, it says. He was trying to see who Jesus was. He doesn't really know who Jesus is. He wants to find out, though. So, he is trying, but he can't because some people say he's short. The Greek word there could mean short. It could also just mean that he's young. So, maybe he's not full grown yet, you know. He's 18. He hasn't hit his late growth spurt yet. We don't know. Could be short. Could be young. But the main thing here is not that he's short. It's that he can't see because the crowd won't let him. It says, on account of the crowd. And the Greek there has this force that says they were causing him to stay out, basically. The people of Jericho, people who would have known who Zacchaeus is, they don't let him get a view. Because they say, he's one of them. He works for Rome. He oppresses us. Jesus isn't coming here for those kinds of guys. He's coming here for us, and they don't let him through. So, Zacchaeus is himself a bit of a social outcast, right? So what does he do? He runs ahead, and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, because Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Now, I love the irony here that Zacchaeus is like, oh man, I got to go see Jesus. I got to climb this tree. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus comes right up to the tree and then he looks up for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is trying to see Jesus. Jesus is there to see Zacchaeus, right? Jesus knows. Now, At this time, you were known by the company that you keep. Much more so than today. Like, we've heard, like, oh, you're known by the company that you keep. But in these days, if you ate with people, 
if you stayed with people, it was more than, oh, I was their guest. It's more of like, we're somehow connected in a deep, almost family-like way. So for Jesus to say, I'm going to go stay with this guy, has the crowd say, he's gone to be with the guest as the guest of someone who is a sinner. This is not good, right? They're like, what are you doing, Jesus? And now, we've reached the part of the story where you might think to yourself, because a lot of people think this way, oh, well, now we get to see Zacchaeus' repentance, right? We see in Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, half of my belongings, Lord, I give to the poor. And if I defraud anyone of anything, I pay back four times as much. If you're following along in your Bible, it probably says something along the lines of, if you're in the NIV, here and now, I will give half of my belongings to the poor. I will pay anybody back. If you're in the NRSV, it will say, um, look, I will give to the poor. I will pay back anybody fourfold, right? There's this sense of, oh, I'm going to do this from now on. That sense of the future, of I'm going to do this now, like I've changed, it's not there in the Greek. Zacchaeus says, this is what I do. I do give to the poor. Half of everything I make, I give to the poor. He says, whenever anyone gets cheated, I pay them back fourfold. He's not saying, this is something I will do. He says, this is something that I do now. But for a lot of people, including a lot of Bible translators, this story is so disconcerting. It's so troubling, unless Zacchaeus repents. But I think what's actually happening here is that Zacchaeus is giving an account of his actions in front of his community. He says, this is who I am. And notice who calls Zacchaeus a sinner. It's not the narrator, right? Luke doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't do it. The people do it. The people say, this man is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus tries to set the record straight. That's not how I live my life, right? And look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. This guy was a part of the people of God all along. And salvation has come to his house. And you might think to yourself, well, it says salvation, so doesn't that mean that he's now been saved? Well, yes in a way. But salvation in the Gospels doesn't always mean I've been saved for what's happening after death, right? It says that when someone is healed by Jesus' hand, they are saved. It says that when a leper is cleansed, they are saved, right? Yes, it happens when someone is forgiven, but it also happens when Jesus just acts in someone's life to make it better. And I bet that if I asked every one of you here, you could say, you know what? My life was saved in a way that starts today. It started 20 years ago. 
it's not just I'm waiting for the other side of death, right? It's that Jesus saves us today from the things that oppress us and bring us down. And in this moment, here is a man who's been cast out by his community for crimes that he hasn't done, right? They say this man is a sinner. He takes advantage of us. And Jesus says, this guy's innocent, and he's actually part of Abraham's children. Brings him back into the community. How is that not salvation? Right? The repairing of relationships between people. And then Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And a lot of us are super familiar with this verse in part because of the song Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But what Jesus is doing here is he's actually referencing a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel where God says, you know what? I set shepherds up over Israel to watch my people, the shepherds being the kings, right? And they did a terrible job. And now my sheep are scattered everywhere. So you know what? I will be the shepherd. I will come and save my people. I will find them. I will heal the broken. I will bind up those who are injured. And I will feed them and take care of them. It's a picture of a God who loves people and tenderly cares for them. And here is a person who is cast out from the people of Israel that God has brought back in and says, rejoice with me. Right? Now, as the band comes back up, I want to talk about how this story relates to our lives. I noticed how, or I talked about how John is really good at giving us good concrete examples of how this principle in the Bible relates to what we're supposed to do in our lives. I'm not very good at that. What I want us to do instead is see how we ourselves plug into this story. This wasn't a story that was written only for people back then. This was a story written for us. And I think if we're willing, we can see ourselves in this story, in these characters. And I think if we try and plug ourselves into the different characters, we could see something pretty amazing. First, if you plug yourself into Zacchaeus, right, we might think, you might think right now, that you need to try to see Jesus. That you got to go out of your way to try and get a good view of who this guy is. Just to figure out who he is. But I want to tell you that Jesus is seeking you before you ever start looking for him. You're going to try and climb a sycamore tree to get a better view. And Jesus is going to come right to you before you even ask for it. And he's going to look up where you don't expect to find a person, right? And say, come down. He's going to call you by name. He already knows who you are, as we're still trying to figure out who he is. The other thing, it's always easy in the gospel stories to plug ourselves into the sympathetic character, right? It's always a lot more uncomfortable to plug ourselves into character who might need a little bit of correction but it's important for us to do it 
So how are we the crowd that keeps Zacchaeus from trying to see Jesus? How have we assumed that certain people are not fit for Jesus' company? That we're better or holier than them? There are certain people that we think automatically, just by looking at them, because of their occupation or how they dress or how they carry themselves or where they live, that we are somehow more put together, more the people that God wants than those people are. And whether we mean to or not, we keep these people out of the social circle. That we keep them out of the presence of God. Or so we think. And then we are stunned when Jesus walks straight through the crowd and goes to them and calls them by name. Because we forgot that Jesus came for that outsider, that single lost sheep, that single lost coin, the one brother who's missing, the one who looks different than us. And then we're stunned when Jesus declares, this person's been doing more of what I asked of them than you could have imagined. And says, this one too is a child of Abraham. So I think that we need to ask ourselves whether we're going to be willing to see people the way that Jesus sees them. Whether we will have the heart to care for the outsider, for the poor, for the lonely. And I think that this is a question that we as Christians need to ask, not once, but every day. Are we going to be the people who sees Jesus the way, or who sees people the way Jesus sees them? And then to go back to Zacchaeus one last time. Are we willing to respond the way that he did? When Jesus calls his name, he hurries down that tree. He receives Jesus with joy. And he lives the way that Jesus had been teaching people to live. Zacchaeus does care for the poor. He does bring himself low for the sake of others. When we plug ourselves into the characters of the story, we can't be Jesus in the story, but we can imitate him. And the great irony here is that Zacchaeus actually imitates Jesus pretty well. So are we going to receive Jesus with joy? Are we going to hurry when he calls us? Are we going to be willing to give generously and to make right the things that are wrong, even if it costs us dearly out of our own pockets? Because if we're following this king on his way to Jerusalem, we have to understand that the kingdom that he's going to establish is not the one that we think he's going to do that makes our lives infinitely better. I mean, he is, but he's mainly going to establish a kingdom that is defined by generosity, by love, and doing the right thing. May we be the kind of citizen that lives out that kingdom. At this time, Tanner and the worship band are going to lead us in one more song. The pillows are up here. If you would like to come up and pray, we will have people over here off to the side of the cross willing to pray with you.
but I would encourage you during this time to take this story that we know so well and just mull it over again and again. And let yourself be surprised by what God has to say to us. And be willing to follow Jesus further down.